Uh, hey, young people that want to start businesses, stop fucking traveling. What are you doing? Like, you're young. You have an enormous amount of energy. If you're going to travel, go somewhere where it's relevant to your business. And that's what I was doing. People look back and say, oh, my gosh, you were you were doing all this amazing stuff. Like, no, I was like hanging out with my staff. I was like meeting with the developer. I was hanging out with investors and mentors. Like I was going to the suppliers that were building our shit. Like this idea that we're all just like waterfalls, elephants and motorcycle rides all the time. It's like, good luck with that. Like now you might have to like, you, you might be wake up at 35 or 45 being like, okay, well now I got to grow a business. What's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Karshovsky, and welcome to episode 32 of That Remote Show, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Dan Andrews, the host of the Tropical MBA podcast and co-founder of The Dynamite Circle and Dynamite Jobs. I've been listening to Dan and his co-host Ian on their podcast for years basically since the very beginning of when I became interested in online business. So I was very excited for this interview, and I got to be honest, guys, it did not disappoint. Dan and his partner, Ian, have been running online businesses for more than 10 years, starting out back when hiring freelancers online wasn't as easy as pulling up Upwork. Since then, they have grown and sold several businesses, one for over seven figures, and have started the hugely popular online forum Dynamite Circle, which serves to connect successful online business owners. Through their forum, they also host DCBKK, an annual event in Bangkok that is frequented by entrepreneurs in the know. And most recently, Dan and Ian have launched Dynamite Jobs, a job board for people looking for work opportunities with remote-first bootstrapped companies, many of them run by members of their forum. And in this interview, Dan and I discuss how they got started in online business, why they decided to head over to Southeast Asia in search of opportunities, where the idea for the Tropical MBA came from, and why Dan regrets selling their business despite the seven-figure exit. We dove into so many topics during this conversation that honestly, I can't list out here, but what I can say is that Dan did not hold back and really opened up about his experience running online businesses for over a decade. I really enjoyed recording this episode, and I think you guys will enjoy listening to it. And if you're digging this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes and let me know what you think. I love reading your guys' reviews. But all right, you guys, I won't delay this any longer. Let's dive into this awesome conversation with Dan Andrews. All right. Well, Dan, welcome to the show, man. I appreciate you stopping by. Our internet just breaks up right at the beginning. That's the remote life right there. <laughs> that that is that is the remote life, man. Well, I'll try it again, man. Thanks for stopping by. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Good. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm super excited to have you on. You're obviously, um, you know, through the Tropical MBA and the, and the podcast and everything like that. Like, I think you've done a lot of really great content over the years on. Uh, this lifestyle and online business stuff. So I'm excited to chat with you and uh, learn from you as well. But before we kind of dive into uh, the Mita stuff, something I wanted to ask you about right starting out is that uh, I've noticed that you've really gotten into biking recently. And I wanted to ask you about where did that come from? 
Yeah. So I always thought that road cycling must be the most boring sport on the whole planet, you know, and certainly not one relevant for somebody that travels a lot, you know? Right. Um, and in many ways it isn't because you have to carry this enormous bike around. And one of the things I learned when I got into it is the training schedule. If you want to be fast on a bike, I mean, I had all this travel anxiety all of a sudden, like, do you want to go here next weekend? It's like, no, I got to train next weekend. You know, I got a race coming up in three months. So it's like these really long drawn out training schedules to get good at endurance sports. But anyway, um, I used to play basketball. And so, you know, I lived in the Philippines. It was like a basketball crazy country at the time. I hosted tournaments and stuff and, um, I got injured and I was over 30 and I started to see my game creeping away. Like I'm a guy who loves to play sports. It was always a big part of my life. And I thought, man, I can't be a 40 year old basketball player. And I don't remember. I do remember actually the moment I got into cycling, Ian was using his bike to stay fit in Austin. So Ian's my business partner. I was visiting him in Austin, Texas. He takes me on a bike ride. He's got this really cool looking racing bike and he kicks my ass. And I thought, this is an unacceptable situation. He can't beat me. <laughs> and so I went out and got myself a racing bike. And it was immediately obvious to me that this is this amazing sport, that you get into this tempo mindset, you get this sense of freedom and flow, and it's one that you can improve at as you get older in life. And I started taking bikes with me as I traveled and found that the bike was this amazing way to get connected into local communities. Cause instead of, you know, finding a good restaurant and sitting around with all the other tourists, you're like riding with local riders and you're, you're seeing it's a little bit slower to get there cause you have to carry all your shit. But now all of a sudden, like I know the topography of like Barcelona and Chiang Mai better than a lot of the locals. Like I know the local villages around because I stopped there for lunch when I'm on these bicycle adventures. So that's kind of the story and how it hooked me in was it, it actually counterintuitively became this amazing way to travel. Mm. And uh, so ever since I've been taking my bike, my sitting right here in the corner, I take it with me wherever I go. Yeah. How, how in the hell do you travel with a bike? Like I imagine you get some weird looks when you try to, you know, check that at the airport. I mean, in the early days, I used to travel around with two backpacks and I was like just Mr. Carry on. And I think there's a couple of factors. One is I was living a lot more frugally. And the other is that it was kind of pre Airbnb days. So I was optimizing for I got to like get off the airplane and walk around for a few days trying to find accommodation. And I don't want to be taken advantage of. I don't want to be in a vulnerable position while I'm walking around. So the idea of having checked luggage and big bags was like no no go and often i would travel from place to place via motorcycle or whatever so nowadays i mean i book all my travel sort of long term in advance through airbnb and it's just not that big of a deal to check luggage or rent a van when i get there so that's what's changed for me and then if i want to go on adventures i still do but i just do it from that base yeah because i also uh i think i saw in the dc that don't you carry like a full-size monitor with you when you travel too yeah, you got to say Dynamite Circle because people are going to oh, think sorry. we're talking Dynamite about Washington, D.C. <laughs> yeah. So in the D.C., it's like this forum for location-independent entrepreneurs. And yeah, one of the things that occurred to me was if I'm going to be checking baggage anyway, um, and you know, what's the harm of tossing a 24-inch monitor at the bottom of that baggage? Another member mentioned this to me. And so I started doing it, and I was like, man, I'm like making up whatever pain in the ass it was uh, to carry this monitor 
I'm making that up in one day of a, like a six hour workday in front of the computer screen, which is still very important to me getting stuff done. So I started doing that. It's kind of been a breakthrough. Um, and I used to do this thing where I'd say like, Oh, if I'm going to be somewhere for X amount of months, I'll go buy a monitor and then I'll donate it to somebody or whatever. Cause they're getting cheaper of course, every year. But nowadays I felt like even just that one week of me dragging my feet to go to the mall to get a monitor wasn't worth it. I might as well just bring my own. Yeah, yeah, totally. I I use my iPad. I'm not yet at that level where I can throw a monitor in because I am still, you know, rolling around with uh, two Tortuga backpacks, which I love. Um, but yeah, um, I, the other thing I wanted to ask. Well, about I'll bike- tell you, here's, here's, here's something that uh, is a helpful tip worth mentioning, which is uh, I learned this from two members as well. If you just have a retina screen, which most of us have nowadays or something mm-hmm. similar, if you increase the resolution to max size, it's the same typically as having a big monitor. It looks weird at first, but uh, like right now, I'm not using my supplementary monitor. I, I have a split screen on a 13-inch Mac with you on one side and my notes on the other. So mm. um, you can get the same amount of work done and then increase your mouse speed to full speed. It feels it's, Both of them feel really weird for like 20 minutes, and then you can't imagine how you ever lived without it. So quick tip huh. there. A friend of mine sent me this thing recently where it's this uh, – I don't know if you've seen this before. It's this monitor that attaches to the back of your laptop screen with magnets, mm. and then it swings out 180 degrees, and it like it's a, another monitor, but just like has like a little pocket, and then you can like swivel it. It's really cool. It's like 180 bucks, I think. So it's not like expensive. That's cool. That yeah. sounds dope. Yeah, really I have sweet. extra monitors. <laughs> That's like the first thing I do whenever I like, you know, get a long-term place. It's like two twenty-seven inches is happening, you know. <laughs> and then most sure. of what I do is just like watch sports on one of them and work on the other. So it's I'm not so sure. It's all about productivity in the end. Right, right. The other thing I want to ask you about biking because I started kind of like, and and I promise the listeners we'll get off biking here in a second, but I started noticing that there were all these other people in the online business space who are really into biking. You know, like I noticed something recently, Noah Kagan posted that he's really into biking now too. Is there something that like myself and the rest and the rest of the people listening who are into online business are missing out about biking? Like, is there some sort of like secret correlation in between the two that we should know about? Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you what though, you know, me and Noah are good friends and because we cycle together, we get to sit next to each other for four hours and like have these adventures together that aren't about like, what are you doing? Where do you, you know, like it's like this low intensity time to be together and to things come out, you know, and I learned a lot from Noah by just pedaling through these, you know, we go to Barcelona together and go on these four hour adventure rides and, uh, that's really valuable. And it's, it's a way to meet people. Like, you know, if someone, if I'm in a, you know, foreign country and someone's like, Hey, do you want to have coffee to like talk about business? I'm basically like, no, you know, like I don't want to talk about business again with the hundredth person. But if you're like, do you want to go on a bike ride? I'm like, fuck yeah, I want to go on a bike ride. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a great way to get to know people is like you come in, you know, the side entrance, so to speak. And it's a great way to meet people that you otherwise wouldn't. Yeah, my dad, uh, my dad grew up a sailor and he always used to say the same thing about sailing. Like if you have a sailboat and you ask somebody like, hey, you want to go out sailing? Today? Nobody's going to say no, you know, so totally. it's like, yeah. Well, before, you know, you were bike riding in Barcelona and in Chiang Mai, where did this whole thing start, right? Before the Tropical MBA, before the Dynamite Circle, how did you first get started with online business? And or should, I should just say business in general. Yeah, so, I mean, it was the, the the very 
origin of the whole thing was I met this dude when I, I traveled cheaply to a foreign country when I was 18. I left the country and it, it wasn't travel that I fell in love with in retrospect. It was this idea of a free person. And you know, this is pre internet. I meet some people in a hostel and some of those people are older and you could tell that they, they had engineered this life where they basically weren't controlled by other people and they weren't controlled by a career. And that really, really inspired me. And so coming out of college, I didn't really have a game plan to get to where they were at. So I was sort of like, well, I guess I got to get rich or something like that. And so I went to California, got a job and it really sucked. And, uh, what was, was the job in? It was, uh, I was doing like, I was an import logistics clerk at this sporting goods company called K2. And it was just straight up corporate, man. I mean, this was like a huge corporation and there was just, it was just this super, this group of people that were just completely satisfied with like moving up the ladder maybe over the course of 10 years. And they didn't really seem to care about the business so much as their careers. And I just found it depressing. They weren't the people that I had studied for four years and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of on fire to like do something with my life. And so what changed everything for me was meeting an entrepreneur. And it was the first person that I'd ever met that was really an entrepreneur, not like someone who just owned a small business or someone who had money from either an inheritance or a big job. This was a person who actually like built companies. And so he was my first role model. I saw him and I said, wow, like this is, this is a path to freedom. Like he has real agency in the world. Now working for him, I didn't have as much agency because I essentially was his top guy. So I ran his company for him for three years. And that was the experience that really changed everything for me because I walked out of there with an understanding of how to run a company. And he was actually my first business partner. So I went to him one day and I said, look, I got this idea for a side company with this new guy, Ian, who's my business partner now. And said, you know, we're running a services business right now. We have clients. This is problematic. You know, we had a $3.5 million company with a bunch of employees. And, you know, I often ask people who are running services businesses, like, what's your end game? Do you want to run a $4 million agency? Have you met somebody running a $4 million agency? Have you talked to them about what that experience is like? Have you asked them what their personal income is? Have you, you know, when you look inside a lot of those businesses, like those people all want to get out. That's been my experience. And so we wanted to get out too, including that owner. And I think that that's part of the reason that he was motivated to partner with us to build a product business. And that's really where the podcast came from was at the time I had been reading Seth Godin and Tim Ferriss, you know, everything that 37 signals, all this stuff that was coming out, like there was the beginning of the blogosphere and people were talking about this new style of, of running a business. And that's the style in which we started to grow our e-commerce business. So as I looked out over the podcast and blog landscape, I thought, man, there's no one really talking about running a product business this way. Everybody else was consultants, agencies, get rich quick guys. There was nobody like selling cat furniture, which is what we were doing. Um, so that's basically because like we got to start a pod and talk about like that it's really possible to grow a remote business with physical products. And that was the genesis of Tropical MBA. Yeah. Where did like why did you guys decide to do this remotely? I mean, it sounds like you guys were, because I know a little bit of the backstory and I know that you guys were both working for this company, right? Like making, what exactly was the company doing uh, before you guys kind of like started the, the, the product side of it? I know you said services, but what exactly do you mean by that? We were contract manufacturers. 
So big retail brands like Petco or Starbucks would come to us and say, hey, uh, for our North American stores, which is a thousand stores, we need like a rack that holds the new coffee line or whatever. And then what we would do is we would design a rack, we would price it out and we'd say, hey, we can deliver these racks in 10 weeks at this price. Like, do you want to go with us? And if they did, then, you know, they, we'd figure out, we'd negotiate terms and we'd go to our factories and this classic client work, but we were doing it through short run manufacturing and we were doing everything in China. And so I had kind of had this cool skill set where there was a remote element to that job already because we were faxing and emailing stuff to China and having to deal with this idea of like, well, half of our company is on the other side of the world. And that wasn't really the case for those companies, you know, 10 years ago, we were on the vanguard of companies that were doing multi-material short run manufacturing in China. You know, that just wasn't possible 15 or 10 years previous. So we were in that first five years of companies doing that. And it was that process that opened me up to this idea of doing our marketing abroad. And so when I say running a remote company, it wasn't like, hey, let's all work from our laptops from home. It wasn't quite that. It was more, why are we doing this in the home office? It was more like kind of mini outsourcing. Like, And when it, we got to the product company, um, at the time I was doing everything like by hand in Yahoo store because you couldn't just put up a WordPress site and have an e-commerce store. And so we had moved to Drupal in order to have like a legitimate um, – e-commerce presence on the web. And we were trying to piece it together with freelancers in California. And it was just so hard to get anybody to work for us for something we could afford. I mean, we're writing these like $4,000 checks of money that we don't have for guys that did a couple weekends worth of work. And that's when I, that's, that, that was the impetus really was like Drupal development that, you know, and that was, that was the impetus really that pushed me overseas. Like we cannot do this in America. Where can we do it? And Vietnam and Philippines were the first two countries that sort of asserted themselves as opportunities. Um, but then it became this bigger thing, which is like, holy crap, we can do all kinds of things overseas, like our marketing and stuff, and outperform our competition. So that's what really led to this sort of idea of decentralizing the company, so to speak. So how did you, because nowadays, I feel like this is just compared to what you used to have to do it's so much easier nowadays right we have upwork we have you know all these other like ways dynamite jobs we have so many different ways of you know finding like skilled remote work or overseas work like how did you do that in the beginning like did you just you went over there and you start like how did you start finding freelancers when you went overseas yeah dude airplane ticket arrive in manila and which is Post, always a shocking like, experience for whoever hasn't been to Manila. The first time is like, whoa, it's, it kind of hits yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> dude, you just, that's, an, that's an understatement. Yeah. And I was like walking around like thinking, is there any part of Manila that's not a shithole? Like, and I, I just couldn't find it. Everything. Uh, I remember like doing all these tourist excursions and I was just like, man, this place just keeps getting worse. Um, I eventually fell in love with Manila, but it, it just took me a while to see the beauty in it. But certainly those first few weeks were shocking. And um, at the time it was like even like any kind I was meeting with entrepreneurs on the ground, like basically trying to figure out like where the talent was. What were the job boards that were relevant locally? Because, of course, like you think about we're in the early days of being switched on to hiring them. They were in the earlier days of being switched on to working for us. So they weren't necessarily looking for jobs of like sort of e-commerce companies in California. And certainly 
um, that would be considered like a liability for most Filipinos with a lot of talent. Like they want to work with a local company that has a great brand or whatever. So I had to like be on the ground hustling up, you know, potential people to work for me. And that's actually where the name tropical MBA came from because I relocated to a smaller town for cost reasons and lifestyle reasons. I was like, I can't live in Manila. So I would like fly the interview candidates down to where I was living to interview them. Like the Filipinos to interview them. Yeah. And the first guy that I hired, I hired him at a thousand dollars a month, which was a lot more expensive than I sort of expected, but he was a great value in my view. He had, he had worked on a Drupal platform for one of the biggest newspapers in the country. So he was responsible for the layout of that site and working on the back end and everything. I thought, I want this guy. So we ended up paying him. We worked together for a few years. But I also thought, man, like thousand bucks a month is like pretty good. Like maybe two years ago, I would have taken that, you know, but because especially like if I get to be a part of this company that's doing this really interesting stuff and like live in Southeast Asia. And so that's where Tropical MBA came from. I was like, forget about hiring like a local marketer, I'll hire an expat. I'll hire mm-hmm. somebody. Who, I mean, at the time you could feel this burning desire on the ground, which is like, I just don't want to go home. Right. There's so many adventurers, travelers, backpackers who are like, I just want to keep the dream alive. And they were doing so by these crazy ways, like working at dive shops or whatever, you know, and it's like, Hey, how about somebody keeps the dream alive by working for our e-commerce company? And so that then started this tradition of hiring interns and eventually apprentices and then ultimately just remote staff. Um, and so Tropical MBA was meant to be this thing that's actually like um, like an apprenticeship. Like, hey, I'll teach you how we've built this e-commerce store and I'll help you start your side business. But I also want you to contribute to what we're doing here. And we ended up doing like, I don't know, maybe 20 internships over the years. So how did you find those first interns, right? Like, did you just like make posts about it? Like, like how exactly did yeah. that go? And did you have to like convince somebody like, hey, guys, this is like for real, you know, like we're not going to rob you when you get here. Like, what what was that experience like those first few times? <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, so the basically what I did was I just put a long form post up on the web, like describing everything we had done and why I thought it was mm-hmm. an opportunity for somebody. Actually, the first intern was Sean Ogle from Location or Location Rebel. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to him directly because I had been reading his blog and he ended up being the best candidate for that first internship. But after that, it got real momentum. And that's one of the things I always believed in the power of the podcast, which is like, you can't really fake it. Like I, you can fake it. Fair enough. You, you, but I think people get to hear your real voice and like really what you were doing. And I'll just say this, like at the time there was nobody else legit in our space. Like everybody else was hot air, smoke and mirrors, tactics, tools, like how somebody did X, Y, and Z. And we were just like, this is our business. This is how much money we're making. This is what we're doing. It was like, it was just more straightforward. It was like, we got a real thing going here. We're not just like, selling you these strategies and tips so that you opt into our consulting or that you opt into our coaching or whatever. It was like, we're actually two guys that are running a business and we need real help. And I feel like that message resonated with people. So one of the things I used to say like earlier in the blogging game was like, you could either call it like having chops or having an angle, which is like, you don't need to have a big audience if you have a really strong message, you know, like if you write one blog post about 
you know, say in 2012, I wrote a blog post about how to set up a company in Hong Kong for a remote e-commerce business. That blog post needs like an audience of five to be successful, not 50,000. And so it really depends like what you're talking about, who your addressable audience is. And our audience, different from every other blog out there, was like, pay me money to teach you how great I am. And my blog post was, I'll pay you money. Because, and, and that was all it needed. And so it didn't need a big audience. You said that back in the day, you know, you guys were kind of like the only ones that were being real and, and not just kind of like throwing like, you know, bullshit in the air. Do you feel like things have changed since then? Because in a lot of ways, I personally feel like now there's more bullshit on the internet about making money online than there has ever been. So how has things changed and have they changed for the better? Or do you think that there's like a lot, I guess I'll leave it at that. Is like, do you think things have changed for the better in, in that, in those terms? I think like both categories have just been magnified. So mm. there's like tons of like super legitimate people doing content online. Like I could just sit here and like give you a Rolodex right. of people. Um, and then there's more and more of the other thing too, which is, and it's something actually that I have to deprogram in a lot of staff members, which is like, I don't want you to write a quote sales letter. I want you to describe what our product does. Like mm. there's this like, there's this like way of like doing quote marketing and then there's actually telling people what you do. And I think, um, experts to me are like worth treating with an enormous amount of cynicism. And my general advice to people is like the information that's on the web that like approximates reality is typically like so far away from reality. So if you do find somebody online that you think is interesting or whatever, freaking plane ticket, phone call, go meet them, figure out what's going on because that's the proofs in the pudding. You're going to figure out like what they really know, ask them hard questions and then you can find some appropriate paths to emulate. The problem I see a lot of people that want to get into the lifestyle, uh, the, the problematic path I believe is like just believing at face value the information you're seeing online and following that for years and trying to emulate it. And then the problem is like you meet that person and you could realize so many things. You could realize like that person's miserable. Like the reason they write blog posts all the time is because, you know, they have a personality disorder and they're a narcissist or like they just want attention or it could be like all these negative reasons that they're actually publishing wonderful content. Um, it could be that they're full of shit. They, it could be that they're a liar. It uh, could be that there's an important part of the story that they're not telling you. And so like all this cynicism is just, it's, it's just to say that like if anything that you're good at, you know, in life that you know a lot about, you can, you know that like, say, you know about the cycling industry or whatever, you know about your particular city. If you Google your city, you know that like half the shit up there about your city is total bullshit. Right. And it's the same thing with all this online stuff about business models. So there's no extra reason to trust this information. Um, and the, the final piece to all this rant, I guess, is I really believe that entrepreneurship is a know how, not a know that. So there's no like piece of information that's really going to make all the difference or guide you better than uh, like the actual know how of knowing how to create value, knowing how to build an organization. So same thing with re, uh, riding a bike. You can't like read an article about riding a bike and then go ride a bike. You have, maybe the article will inspire you to risk the experience of falling off a bike. And once you get it, you've got it, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really the same thing with entrepreneurship, I believe, which is 
you know, you see people struggling with the information and trying to figure out this and that and the other thing. And you're just like, well, you don't know how to run a business. So that three years of running a business was worth, you know, its weight in books and articles and podcasts because I actually knew how to do it. And now I can read an article about riding a bike and I can say, oh, okay, you know, here's how to structure a training program around that. But now I have that basic know-how of like actually being on the bike. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that with, sense. yeah, no, I think with like entrepreneurship, it's, it's so much about practice because like you said, you can read every article in the world or like the thing that I thought when I was getting started was like, oh, if I could only meet this person who's doing this thing, they must have this like amazing knowledge that they would like gift upon me and everything would be roses and rainbows. And then you meet them and it's like, no, they're just another person just like you who is probably just as fucked up as you in many ways, but just like, you know, did this yep. thing over and over again. And it just sort of like, I don't know, for me, it tore down like one person after the next. Not to say those weren't awesome people, but it's almost like I say, like, don't put it on a pedestal. Like it's like I've just realized it's a lot about repetition and getting good at like what you do. There's no like magic bullet, essentially, you know. Totally agree. And, you know, the other practice that's very closely related to that is your relationships. Like, you know, who are you able to earn the friendship of? Like, who finds you valuable? Who thinks you're not full of shit? Like, how, you know, how do you end up not being full of shit? You know, there's so many people going through the motions of doing what they're supposed to do rather than doing something of any true value to the entrepreneurial community. And, I think people are intimidated when they're first getting started out because they say, well, I don't have a lot to offer. When I was first getting started out, what I had to offer, and I did hang out with people that were super successful, what I had was like a real Petri dish of a small business. And even though it was only making 10 grand a month or whatever, I like knew what I did to get there. And for a lot of really wealthy people, they're like so many steps removed from those like new tactics and new things that are happening on the web, the trends and stuff. So if you have like a legitimate insight to that and you own a, a small platform or a sandbox that can be of enormous value. So I, I, in other words, like you don't have to like puff yourself up or be somebody that you're not like, you just have to be somebody who has a daily practice of actually caring about entrepreneurship. And the sad thing is online is like, you know, you, especially with this whole new trend of like social media influencers and stuff, like they, they seem to care so much about themselves and or that's the perception I have, like furthering their own agendas. They want to meet the right people. They want to have success. And it's never about like, well, do you know how to rank number one on Google? Have you done it? Can you show me? Like, that's what I care about. Like, I don't care about your personal journey to be successful. Like, I want to see people that are doing things that are more generally interesting than trying to advance their own careers. And that's a, that, I bring it up because it's a secret weapon. Like it's this basic stuff is still super um, rare. It's super rare to have find people that follow up on their word, that, you know, do small things well. Like just basic, basic stuff is still in high demand, I think. Do you think there's a difference between, you kind of touched on this um, earlier on that the, the person, you, you know, your first business partner, that he was sort of like the first entrepreneur that you met. Do you feel like that there's a difference between being a business owner and being an entrepreneur? Yeah. Yeah. That's a hard question, but I'll take a stab in one direction. Entrepreneurs typically 
are business owners that are focused on value. They prioritize value over money. So money is typically something that we can all agree on. Like a dollar is a dollar. You have a dollar. I have a dollar. Now I have this thing that's like a car and we all agree that it's worth this amount of dollars. And now I own a dealership that, uh, trickles down. In other words, like small business owners typically trade in commodities that are like have an agreed upon value. And what I think entrepreneurs do is they evolve their businesses in the direction of expected value or things that they are building up the value of that will eventually one day be agreed upon and traded for money. So a simple example would be, you know, if you look at like the early days of the dynamite circle, I started hosting masterminds on the phone and in person. And I did it because I knew that there was value in legitimate entrepreneurs, the people that were the people that you want to meet, in other words, getting together and having hard conversations. I knew that like I was insatiably hungry for it. I knew other people were, but because like it wasn't a known entity, people weren't willing to pay for that. So I had to build up the value of it. I did it for two years for free because I knew it was valuable. And then one day there's enough agreement and trust that this new thing is valuable, then you can start to charge for it. I think that's a little bit of a distinction between, and I won't say like, it's not an identity thing. You're not either an entrepreneur or a business owner. Like, I think that it's a practice. And so the practice of running a small business, there's things that are intimately tied up with that practice, like understanding what a P&L is, understanding how to manage people, you know, understanding especially financial elements of a business, and then I think entrepreneurship is much more about understanding value, understanding how to communicate it, and understanding how to move that towards something that could ultimately be agreed upon and traded for money. I think that's something that I actually feel, and I think maybe maybe I'm alone in this, but I feel like there's a lot of like newer, younger, you know, business owners or entrepreneurs who, at least I personally feel a bit um like what's the word i'm looking for here like like scared that i don't know those business terms you know like appeal in the you know like like those sorts of terms like do you think that those are negatives for like younger like entrepreneurs that they need to like get up to speed or do you think they should like embrace that well i have this idea in my head called exit velocity and exit velocity is like the sort of momentum you have when you start your first venture and you can get that momentum from so many different things. It could be your knowledge of P&L and finance. It could be a, a key relationship that you have. It could be product knowledge. So it really depends on what kind of asset you're showing up to the table with. My, I don't think there's anything specific that newer entrepreneurs need to know. I just think they need to have an asset or a, a competitive edge or that supreme exit velocity, like your exit velocity counts. So somebody that's starting a business that's had a career for 10 years, provided all things else are being equal, like they're in a much better situation than the person who hasn't had a career. Um, typically because they have all of the relationships, the industry understanding, etc. Now, of course, all things being equal. So I think I see a lot of younger entrepreneurs really struggle because the internet gives you an on-ramp that you can kind of like jump into it pretty fast. Like 
you could, for example, like set up a website and it could be getting to the point where you're making 500 bucks a month or whatever, and you have some savings and you're like, you know, I'm going to go do this thing. Typically in that situation, I'd say, ah, that's a little bit of a weak exit velocity. Like why not, you know, why jump so soon? Why not like then quit your job and like go get a better job, like go apprentice for a little longer, like build in some deeper industry contacts, like understand a better niche than like some vague affiliate site or whatever. That's kind of where I go with this question in general is this idea of exit velocity. As an example, I mean, being an entrepreneur, most things about business, you're just not going to know at the beginning, you know? So for example, like Ian's exit velocity was his product vision. So he was a true entrepreneur. He like, he knew that like this piece of industrial furniture was going to be valuable. And again, like that's entrepreneurship. He had to invest a lot of money and spend a year developing that product. There was a cocktail bar, mobile cocktail bar. Um, it took him a year to like figure out that indeed people would pay money for that. Um, he knew that that was a skill and an exit velocity he had. But, um, if you like in the early days, Ian didn't know what a PL was. And I think that's part of the reason why he talks about it so much nowadays is like, he realized that that was critical information that he needed to know to run a good business. And he just went and learned it. So no, I don't think it's, there's this, this kind of like curriculum that you do need to understand, but I do think you need to have a vision for how to win, mm. you know, like how am I going to beat? people that are already there. Like what's my angle? What's my personal asset? Um, and yeah, that's what I would encourage people to, to find. So in, in mentioning Ian, something to, I want to bring it back to is, so you're in Southeast Asia, essentially you're living the dream, you know, you're, you're living good weather, oh, yeah. uh, you know, cheap living, that sort of stuff. Where is Ian at this point and, and how did, that sort of separation, you know, where you're in Southeast Asia, he's back in the U.S., I presume. How did that affect your relationship? And did you guys ever have any tension or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, typical tensions. Um, I don't know, like, in some ways it's weird because the biggest story with us is, I think, how little of tension we've had relative to most business partnerships I see. Or both really good communicators. I think we're friends first, which is maybe rare in a business partnership. Um, like, yeah, we're partners through and through. We talk about everything, like everything's on the table. We're 50, 50 partners in those days, especially once like TMBA and DC got momentum, um, became a six figure business in its own right. And then multi six figures. And then it became a thing like we both had our roles. Like he was the, you know, the GM or CEO, whatever you want to say of like the product. And I was the leader of the publishing. And then I provided him with marketing services. And as you know, my side of the business grew, he eventually like took those marketing services under him. So there was like, that was like pretty easy because it's like, you lead this, I lead that. They both work together. We're all happy. The, biggest tension came when we sold our business mm. in 2015. So we exited the business and the tension came from like, well, what are we going to do now? And we have to work together a lot more, you know, like rather than being, we were like each other's mastermind. It's like, okay, like these two business owners, like giving each other feedback on how to be better and all that and paying each other, you know? So that was cool. Um, and then you get to the situation where now it's like, well, who's the boss now, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so that was the, I think the most difficult time you combine figuring out a way to work together 
on a more daily basis with dealing with, I think the real kind of sadness that often comes with like selling your life's work and cashing out being a sellout essentially. And that was what I, I wrote the book before the exit kind of, that was like my way to deal with the kind of vague depression that came with having doing something I regretted essentially and having done something with my best friend that I regretted and wondering how he felt about it. And, and, um, so the, I think that was like kind of the darkest period is like, eh, maybe we shouldn't have sold that thing. And now what are we going to do? And that was like so much better than what we have built elsewhere. So do we want to go back to be being in our twenties again and like work like insane people? And it used to be so easy because we had a big staff and we could just tell them what to do. And now it's like, I'm like telling Ian what to do. And he's like, dude, I don't want you to tell me what to do. You know? <laughs> so I think that, that that's where the tension came from. The, the highest point of tension was like, what are we going to do in the wake of this thing that everybody wants as an entrepreneur? Like everybody says like, you know, build a business and sell it for a million bucks. And that's what we did, you know, and I made a million bucks. And I was like, awesome. Now this isn't as great as I thought it was going to be. And why? And I can't say that except in this podcast. And it's not something I would say in like general company, you know, and I think that's part of the reason why that message doesn't get itself to the internet. And so again, like coming back to our theme of like information about entrepreneurship, the reality is 50% of entrepreneurs that exit a business are miserable about it. And why doesn't that information get to the public? Well, because first off, people aren't incentivized to share it. There's no real reason to share it. And second off, there can be a lot of downsides to sharing. Hey, I did this. I made a bunch of money and I'm not happy about it. That's like the, not something you want to go share online. And so you're just not going to hear about it nearly as much as other sorts of information that people are incentivized to share. So maybe it's an interesting question. Like anytime you read information online, the better question is not what is this information trying to communicate to me, but like, what is it about this person that makes them want to say this? It's probably mm. a better question. Do you regret selling the business? Yeah, totally. Like if you could go back, you wouldn't sell it? Wouldn't sell it. Hmm. How come? Like just like because of it just the the money that came out of it wasn't as much as you thought it was. It didn't do the things you thought it was going to do. Or was there like, did you have some sort of identity attached to having that business that you then feel like you lost? All of the above. But I'll share the first thought experiment in the book mm -hmm. with you just to give you a sense for. So the book isn't. The book is dope. If I'm just, I'm going to be straight up salesman. My book, and Before what, the what's Exit. And what's the title of the book, a, Before the Exit? It's called Before the Exit. You can email me, Dan at Tropical MBA, and I'll send it to you for free. Or you can buy it for $3 on Amazon if you want it on your Kindle. So the book is a series of five thought experiments. And they are the thought experiments I wish I would have ran before I sold the business. There wasn't a lot of mentors that had specifically sold this kind of business, and I didn't proactively seek them out very much. So the first thought experiment is called the lifestyle ladder. And it's essentially this idea of how personal, personal money in your bank account unlocks lifestyle opportunities. And the interesting thing about the lifestyle ladder is that money in your bank account behaves non-linearly in terms of its usefulness. So here's an example. If you have, if you have credit card debt, you know, so the first step is being in debt. Second step is being broke. So that's zero money. And then the next step would be say having $20,000. Now going from $0 to $20,000 is absolute life-changing money. It changes 
everything. Okay. So now you're at $20,000 and I come along and give you another 20 and now you have 40. Not much has changed. You're basically more or less the amount of things that you can do is, is about the same. And this idea gets less intuitive as you go up the, the ladder. And I'll just give the punchline for me personally. But if you're, if you say have like 200 or $300,000 and then you get a million on top of that, it doesn't change your life that much mm. because you're still like in the same category of both consumption as a consumer, as an end, as an investor. And so part of what I did in the book was I went around and questioned people about what those true rungs might look like and what amount of money in your personal bank account might open up true new opportunities. And this becomes a problem because your business is like an opportunity factory. I mean, going to these entrepreneurship events, I'll tell you, one of the most, I want to use the word like lame, like one of the most lame in, in the sense of the word that like it's difficult to do things. One of the hardest positions to be in in entrepreneurship is that you're kind of on your second or third thing and you've got a little bit of money, but not a lot. That's a really tough position. And I meet these people all the time at conferences. They kind of want to be a small scale investor, but they can't be too big a one because they can't risk their retirement. Right. And still got many, many years to live. So they got to be involved or do something new. But they're not necessarily willing to like sweat equity their way up to it, like through that five years of bullshit that everybody goes through at the beginning. And so this is like this kind of middle ground that a lot of people end up in that, um, yeah, I would, well, you want to stay out of that middle ground, you know, because your business is, gains you access to all these opportunities. You show up to, um, you show up to a mastermind or a party or whatever. And it's like, Hey, I'm the guy that owns this thing. And like, maybe we could connect and hook up together. If you show up to the party and you're like, I'm the guy that's got 750 grand in my bank account. It's like, I know for young people that is amazing life changing money. But the reality is, is like as an investor that doesn't set you apart. It doesn't make you unique. It doesn't get you deal flow. Like people just don't, they don't need it. They don't care. And so you're in this weird position where you don't have like enough money to get involved in like meaningful investments at any kind of scale or variety. And you also like probably don't have the work ethic to go back and do what the young people are doing because you got like kind of okay money. And so you're in this weird middle zone and that's kind of the, the thought exercise of the lifestyle ladder. I know it sounds ridiculous. If I would hear me saying this when I'm 25, I'd be like, whatever, dude, I would just be like, whatever, I would dismiss it. But for anybody thinking that I would just say this, like, this is the game you're in. You're interested in growing a business. You're interested in growing wealth. Like this is the ball game you're playing. So whether or not you think I'm full of shit or not, I encourage you go meet some wealthy people and be like, dude, how much money do you have in your bank account? Like figure out the real shit. And a lot of wealthy people are very transparent. And the reason is, is that they deal in numbers and money all day long. So they don't like identify with how much money they have in the same way that maybe like a corporate executive or like a person with a job might. So go to that person, dig the fuck in and figure out what you're working for. You know, why are you going to spend five, 10 years of your life growing a business, figure out the end game. And that's sort of the idea of the book is like, here's where like this stuff all ends up and you can like kind of plan for it now and build a business with all those things in mind. Yeah, I mean, I think to your point, like even though I'm 26 and uh, I 
I totally understand what you're saying about that because it's almost like it's diminishing returns, you know, and, and, and Mark Manson just had a really great, um, he just did a really great interview on the, uh, the empire flippers podcast. Um, and he talked about exactly that, but in travel. And that's something that I've really felt where, you know, my girlfriend, and I've been traveling nonstop for the last three years. And there's a point at which that next country just doesn't really feel as big as that first or second country, you know, that third year of working remotely and traveling doesn't feel anywhere as big as that first year. And I'm sure the same thing happens with money. Exactly. Like you explained, right. It's like that 20, I can only imagine having 20 bucks in the bank account, but like, does that really change much from 20 to 40? Like I, I, I totally understand that. Um, the By the way, I'm, old yeah. man rant, old man rant incoming. <laughs> uh, hey, young people that want to start businesses, stop fucking traveling. What are you doing? Like, you're young. You have an enormous amount of energy. If you're going to travel, go somewhere where it's relevant to your business. And that's what I was doing. People look back and say, oh, my gosh, you were you were doing all this amazing stuff. Like, no, I was like hanging out with my staff. I was like meeting with the developer. I was hanging out with investors and mentors. Like I was going to the suppliers that were building our shit. Like this idea that we're all just like waterfalls, elephants and motorcycle rides all the time. It's like, good luck with that. Like <laughs> now you might have to like, you, you might be wake up at 35 or 45 being like, okay, well now I got to grow a business. Right. You know, while, while I have family health problems, while I have, I want to grow a, a family. I, I want to do all these things. Well, good thing I spent my whole twenties like running around the world you know, living this lifestyle. So for me, it's like, I would say I'm, I'm not hating on that. I'm just saying, figure out what your real priorities are. Like for me, I was saying, if you want to have the lifestyle, start with the business. So you could, and I think what a lot of people do is they start with the lifestyle and they say, well, I can pay for this now because there's this whole new brave new world. And the people that have the best lifestyles that I've met are the people that focused on the business because now it's like, you're five, you're six. You know, the sweet spot is like you're six, you're seven, you're eight. That's when you like hire a general manager. Typically, that's when you're sitting around on the golf course or the restaurant Wednesday at 11 a.m. And everybody there, they're not the elephant crowd. They're not the people who went to 25 countries last year. They're the people who have 25 people working for them. And they're sitting in a five-star resort relaxing, talking about what amazing things we all can do together. And the elephant crowd doesn't get invited, you know, because they didn't do anything. Mm. And no one, no one wants to talk to the person who went to 35 countries. Um, who cares? Like, what are you doing? What are you even doing? Like, I agree. Like I take it a step further than Mark Manson. It's like, that's just not interesting. Like the person who's maniacally running around the world, like doing every Instagrammable thing, I'm making a caricature here, but like, that's not interesting. That's just not interesting. Like dig in, like build something, do something interesting. That's the people that you're going to show up with. You know, when I, I'm just thinking about like a round of golf I had yesterday, it was like Tuesday morning, there's four of us. And it's like, this guy has, you know, $1.2 million invested in startup crypto stuff. This guy has an Amazon business that pumps off X number of tens of thousands of dollars a month passively to him. This, this woman does this and it's like, and we're all relaxed. We're all talking about where we're going to be next year. Like what conferences we're going to go to. It's this different vibe than the kind of maniacal, like, Oh my God, everything's so amazing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, 
I, and it's because all those people, what they had in common was they started with the business mm. and then lifestyle followed. Yeah. It's almost like you're saying instead of traveling, like you were traveling for location arbitrage, right? Go somewhere cheap to get yourself a better runway, you know, cheaper lifestyle so that you can invest more money in the business. Don't necessarily, you know, jump on a flight every two weeks to take the next picture. If you can go wherever you want, um, that could be an enormous asset to your business. But if you use it instead, like, like for example, like I just said countless times, like go meet these people, like figure out Mm -hmm. whether the people you're trying to emulate are people that you actually want to emulate. And you can go do that. You can spend a few weeks with them, find a way in, whether it's cycling and sailing, whatever you got to do, like get in that door and that's the way to use travel, right? Like go to see vendors, go to find new opportunities. And then you're going to have those travel experiences as you go along. It's, I think it will make them richer at the end of the day. But I think there's a big strategic line item on so many like nomadic entrepreneurs that are struggling. They just don't see the cost in terms of like the bottom line, the attention, the lack of speed, the lack of all this stuff that their kind of lifestyle has. And look, like, I really don't believe that like starting businesses like these is necessarily a balanced thing. And sometimes it, okay. So here's a, here's a common trope. Um, I went to Vietnam to visit Ho Chi Minh city where I live in Vietnam and I see these digital nomads and all they do is sit in a co-working space all all day long and stare at their laptop. They didn't even see Vietnam. And part of me thinks I get the critique, but also that's the whole damn point. The whole point is to is to focus on one thing 100% for five years of your life so that it pays off. And that's an enormous risk. That's an existential risk to your lifestyle, to your relationships, to everything. But it's one that I think needs to be taken if you want to grow a business of meaningful size. And yeah, so there you go. Where do you think the the future of online business is going? You know, you you were you were doing this ten years ago. Where do you think the next five ten years is going to take us? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, first off, I have no idea. Second off, uh, I think focusing on the basics, like there's here's a here's a basic. Like, can you work five hours a day building assets? Can you stay focused for five hours a day? That's a very basic thing. So that's going to require you to like not have a job, not work for clients because like when you work for clients, you're not working on an asset. So like stick to the basics. Number two, like can you, can you surround yourself with four other people that are all wealthier and more successful than, than you and that respect you? Can you be the poorest person in the room? This is a basic. Um, I think focusing on that stuff Um, and in some cases, like maybe the inner work or outer work that like, for example, like, can you hold down a job apprenticing for an entrepreneurship entrepreneur for a few years? You know, like I, there was a t-shirt that was popular for a few years there that said unemployable. And my always thought was like, well, how's that working out for you? Like, is that some kind of brag? Like you can't work with people like that's going to bite you in the ass. So that's a problem. So can you go into somebody else's business and truly grow it. And the answer for so many people that are writing advice online is I tried that a bunch of times and I couldn't. So I started my own thing telling advice online, which is something that's non-falsifiable. But when the chips were down, they couldn't actually do it. 
And that's the problem that's worth solving right there. Not how can I get out from underneath this boss and like do my own thing. The problem we're solving is like, why aren't I a person that can grow organizations? Right. And that's a harder problem to solve. And that's the basics. So those are just the basics in terms of trends. Um, the thing that I'm seeing that's interesting is just the dissolution of the company. So when we started, we called it a micro multinational. Like if I would have described my company to you in, you know, 2010, I think like, okay, well, we have an incorporation in Hong Kong. We have a marketing staff in Manila. And I just would have like laid out all the things. And I said, guess the amount of revenue that we have. I think the guess might have been 25 million. In order to have like all these sort of home offices everywhere and different incorporations and stuff, the answer was three. So I think that that trend continues, which is more and more business processes can be executed like right outside of the walls of your company. And so more revenue per headcount, smaller teams of smarter people pulling together freelancers, services, part-time people um, to get something wonderful done. But that would be my, that's the main, the biggest trend that I'm seeing. I also think the, with the rise of remote jobs, you know, you mentioned dynamite jobs, um, a bunch of other sites that are which doing, is, which is your guys's, uh, like job board. It's a job board. Yeah, basically. And, and it's curated jobs from small bootstrapped internet businesses. Whereas maybe, you know, work from home jobs like 10 years ago would have been a lot of sales stuff, MLM, all that kind of bullshit. And then maybe five years ago, maybe corporations allow certain people to like work from home for a couple of days a week. But these are more like working for remote companies with a remote culture. And those opportunities are becoming so appealing that I think the need for the drive for entrepreneurship might alleviate a little bit because um, entrepreneurship's really hard. And I think a lot of people, it's sort of like I, I read this Mark Manson article and I totally related to him because I wanted to be a rock star when I was a kid. I wanted the benefits of being a rock star. I didn't want to do the processes of actually writing songs. Um, I found that too painful at the end of the day. And so I just messed up there. I realized that I wanted the outcomes, but not the lifestyle, so to speak. And I think the same is true of entrepreneurship. Like you see, it's pretty easy to see like the drive by entrepreneurs, the people who aren't actually interested in entrepreneurship or business, what they want is the outcomes. And I think as more and more of these, you know, bootstrap companies get off the ground, that's going to be just fine because now all of a sudden they can just join a wonderful team get paid really well for their work, be valued, and they'll get the most of the benefits, which is, you know, like you said, diminishing returns, like 80% of it isn't maybe being wealthy for most people. It's, it's having that lifestyle of like freedom and flexibility and the opportunity to work with people that are cool and do good work. I think that's 80% of it. The other 20% is the fucking bullshit that you put up with when you're running a company. And that's really hard. And you know, those benefits are, uh, potentially you could end up being wealthy. And that was really important to me. And I think it's worth, you know, exploring how important it is to you. When you meet wealthy people, you realize like how hard they worked for it. And you might not see that it's all that interesting in the end of the day. But for me, it always was. Why was it so interesting for you or so important for you? I don't know. Uh, I think because I grew up without a lot of money in part. Um, I think too, it's just like sort of a seed. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's hard to really manufacture an answer for it. I just, 
I, I always knew that I just, I think this is like probably a psychological, um, maybe arrested development, like because money was such a big deal to me when I was a kid, like the fact that I maybe suffered some embarrassment because I couldn't, my parents just, they were cool. They, they just didn't give me money. So like while all my friends like were getting these things, like I was the one friend that didn't have all the things because I didn't have any money. So I did get jobs and stuff, but I never made enough money at those jobs to, to like buy the big things that I wanted, like whether that's an international trip or a car. Right. And so there was always part of me that was like, I don't want to care about this stuff when I'm older. I don't want this to be a question anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to solve that. And I think that that was like part of that, that core drive. And you'll find this with a lot of really successful people that it's like weird stuff that drives them like, Oh, you know, your relationship with that person as a young person, like didn't go so well. And now you want to prove them wrong. And like, you're still proving them wrong and you're 60 years old. Um, so sometimes it's just that simple. It's not like some grand strategy, you know? <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. Well, Dan, thank you so much for uh, stopping well, by. I really appreciate thing. it. Let me say, let me say one yeah, more absolutely. Give me the microphone. On, on that end though. Um, if you're going to be spending so much time on the practice of entrepreneurship, if you're going to like mortgage your life and your and change everything for this, why not put yourself on the path towards, because here's the thing, like struggling with like a middling business model with middling customers and like a middling network is at the end of the day, just as stressful and just as hard as managing 10 people and hanging out with ballers and putting yourself on the right track. So if you're going to take all the risk to do this, why not point yourself in the direction of wealth as opposed to just hovering above the rent line, so to speak. So I think that's my pitch for, you know, aim big because it's just as hard um, as, as paying the rent. Yeah. I, uh, I actually heard this, uh, I heard, I can't believe I'm saying this. I heard Grant <laughs> Cardone say say something once, who I personally fucking hate. It's okay. Uh, it's him too. <laughs> but he, I just, yeah, but he, he said something once that he said, you know, life is hard for a waitress and life is hard for like a millionaire who runs like a huge company. So you might as well choose the millionaire path because at least then you don't have to worry about money. And, and I heard him say it and I was like, Shit, that's kind of true, you know. It's so true, and and you know, we we make these decisions like, oh, I don't want to work with staff, or I don't want to do this, and it, it it's like you're still gonna face anxiety, you're still gonna face stress. Mm -hmm. Why not go the direction that has better outcomes in the end? And staff is a common inflection point for this kind of reasoning. I'll tell you what, the people that are less, the least stressed out about their business are the people that have a good staff, and and then. People earlier in the journey say, oh, I can't imagine running, managing 10 people or whatever. That's always been one of our hacks is like we always hire early. We're always less profitable than some of our competitors or friends because we have people running our asset for us. And that's always been not only like really rewarding and part of the reason I regret selling the other business. It's been rewarding to have this little country of people that follow the mission and that are part of the team. But... It, it's actually, I think, reduced our stress per dollar earned at the end of the day. And so I like that quote quite a bit. I agree. Like, I remember having a job in a corporation and it sucked way worse than managing 10 employees. So lean into the hard stuff because it eventually gets easier. Mm. 
Well, dude, uh, I appreciate you stopping by and chatting, and uh, I want to be respectful of your time. I know it's pretty early over there sure. for you. Um, but before we jump off, uh, where can people find you? Where Where do you want them to uh, come find you on the on the uh, web? Yeah, tropicalmba.com slash podcast. Go there, subscribe. We've got a gazillion episodes. Um, a lot of it's in the early days, it's just gonzo uh, journalism, me and Ian talking about how little we know about doing this stuff. And those are some of my favorite episodes, actually, to be honest. I've gone back and re-listened <laughs> sure. a lot of them. So Those are the good ones. Now we're just we're sort of dying on the vine over here, man. So thanks for having me on the on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully uh next time we can do it in person, maybe at a DC event or something like that. But yeah, thanks yeah. so much. Cheers.